Uh, thank you very much. Um, uh, my name is Steve Larmay. I'm a medical oncologist within FDA, and I'm really honored to be here in front of so many people who have you know, worked so hard to improve the lives of uh, patients with GI cancers. So I was asked to, to deal today, or present today, on how to deal with the explosion of new treatments. So I, I think this topic can be tackled in so many ways, so I'll, I'll give an effort to, to do the first job at it. How do we move forward? With this? Oh, okay. Oh, oh, okay. Thank you. Um, so I, I thought I'd start out for about a, in, starting in 2011, for about a six-year period, I was the, um, I, be, I was exclusively working with uh, GI cancer drugs. And so I thought I'd list all the drugs that FDA approved, um, not including some of the vaccines since 2011. So clearly there's many drugs approved here. Many of them have been transformative for some of the patients with different cancers. Um, however, Clearly, the, the approval of new transformative drugs in GI cancers has appeared to lag behind some of the other tumor types. So for GI cancers, the, some of the drugs we approved include three drugs that, that, that affect the VEGF pathway um, and, and produce modest improvements in survival in patients with colon or, or gastric cancer. We approved um, TAS-102, which um, also is a modest improvement in, in uh, third-line colorectal cancer. And we approved, <coughs> approved lutetium-177 dotatate for neuroendocrine tumors, which has been used for years, decades in the Netherlands, um, and probably has a bigger effect for patients with neuroendocrine tumors. Um, however, we're still trying to learn how to sequence it. Finally, I highlighted nivolumab and pembrolizumab, which have received accelerated approval for gastric cancer and, and hepatocellular cancer. But probably the biggest effect of these two drugs is in patients with MSI high cancers, which we, um, for the pembrolizumab received the tissue agnostic approval. So why has it been tougher in GI oncology? Well, it's, you know, biology is most likely the, their main reason. So few of our patients with GI cancers have druggable targets. Um, many of the patients with GI cancers have, have a lower mutation burden compared to patients with melanoma or, or lung cancer. So, you know, immunotherapies may be harder to use for these patients. Um, is investment with companies different? I, I, I don't know. I, I don't have a sense of that. And of course, biology is, is paramount. We have to keep continuing on building what we've learned about uh, the biology of these tumors, you know, what Dr. Tabanero has done and Dr. Tejpar in Europe have done for many years. So despite what I've said in the previous slides, uh, clearly progress has been made in, in different um, GI cancers. Um, and he, this lists some of the items that we've, uh, as, a, as a community, have made progress on in the, in the years in pancreatic and colorectal cancer. Um, just in this meeting, we've heard a positive trial in HCC, as well as Dr. Conwa's positive trial in adjuvant, um, which is adjuvant pancreatic cancer, which is re will really make a, a big difference for patients. So in the red boxes, I just listed some of the applications and items which I've had the, the opportunity to work on while at the FDA. So regulatory progress. I thought <coughs> I'd get a transition a little bit to how we've gone to this point as an FDA um, with some of these new drugs. When I, when I started at the FDA, m my review work really focused on cytokines and monoclonal antibodies regardless of indication. My first molecular entity that I worked on was ofatumumab for CLL. Um, it was a very different agency back then. And what Dr. Pazer has really done, I think that the, the most important, there are so many things that have happened at the FDA in the last 10 years, breakthrough, et cetera. But what he's really done is made specific um, teams working on uh, disease expert teams in the different um, fields like GI cancers, breast cancer, lung cancer. And I, I think that's really made more of an academic atmosphere at, at the FDA. We're writing a lot more, we're giving more talks, 
We're being interactive with the community, with ASCO, ACR, hopefully with ESMO. And I think that really has made a big progress in how we deal with biology, how we deal with drugs. And coincident with that approach, we've seen a uh, profound understanding of improvements in biology for um, different tumor types and you know, some drugs which are transformative and really have helped some patients. So from a historical perspective, in the 1970s, FDA approved drugs mainly using tumor shrinkage as, as an as a endpoint. So at that time, there were, there were limited therapies available, um, and at the time, uh, we granted regular approval for some of these therapies, mainly cytotoxic drugs. In the 1980s, a change in this interpretation occurred. So you know, we saw limited response rates for some of these cytotoxic drugs, and they were toxic, and often they did not translate into benefit. So it was really a shift at that time to overall survival as the, as the primary endpoint for approval. So and then this started to happen, and, and <clears throat> for this was a paper in 2001 for imatinib and, and CML, um, which really transformed the landscape of, of treatment for this disease. Um, profound change um, in knowing both the biology and, and a treatment for that biology and that disease. So it took many years for, for that revolution to really occur in solid tumors. Um, so that was 2001. You know, now we're seeing this in some solid tumor types. So we, have, we understand the biology, we have enriched populations, strong basic science and durability, some of these responses. So these are three different applications that I've had the pleasure to work on. One for brugatinib in lung cancer for alt-positive lung cancer, um, one for BRF-positive anaplastic thyroid cancer, and one for MSI high cancers, um, all with um, large response rates and, and durable responses as well. So looking closer at how we look at response rate as an agency, there are, there are multiple variables for response rate. Um, we look at tumor burden location. You know, again, a, a, pelvic lymph, a small pelvic lymph node that responds is different than you know, a, local, a large local response in a patient with anaplastic thyroid cancer. You know, look at available therapy, unmet need, you know, are there complete responses, the durability of the responses, how many, how many patients have the tumor reduced but less than 30%, um, as well as disease prevalence would be considered. Um, you know, here's an example of where our tumor is responding. So we've given full approval for certain dermatologic cancers who have had profound responses in, in disfiguring dermatologic lesions. The example on the left is, is Vismodegib for basal cell cancer. Um, the example on the right is, is denosumab, which I had a little bit of a uh, chance to work on. These are, these are rarely local destructive tumors. Um, so the patient right there has a sacral lesion and perhaps would have had to have an extremely morbid surgery to uh, remove that tumor. <clears throat> so ultimately, the ultimate endpoint design, uh, end trial design that should be considered for trials really depends on context. So equipoise is important for the ethical context of randomized trials. So the example on the right is crizotinib in lung cancer, which had a close to 70% response rate, median duration of response of 18 months. Um, there's, you know, it's a rare population. There's no other therapies. So we, we granted that regular approval. Um, and conversely, the situation on the left that you know, you know all well, it, it has a regraph in it, but it had a 1% response rate. But ultimately, it did demonstrate benefit with an improved survival effect in these pop patients. Um, however, there, there was equipoise to conduct that trial where there may not have been for the ROS1 positive lung cancer um, application. So randomization still has value. Um, so again, everything is context-dependent. So the example on the left is where we used overall survival as an endpoint. Um, you all know this trial very well, TAS-102. Um, the, 
the study did demonstrate a PFS effect, but it was, it was a modest PFS effect, and you know, the fact that it was able to demonstrate a, a statistically significant effect on overall survival made the application much stronger. Um, whereas on the right is uh, lutetium-177 dotatate. You know, this is a slow, slower-growing tumor. Um, you had a very large effect on PFS, and you know, requirement to demonstrate a survival effect would have resulted in delay of approval for many, many years. So these are some of the guiding principles moving forward. The best access for patients, of course, is approval of an effective drug and affordability. Um, and I think we'll hear a lot about that in the, in the next presentations. Um, I'll mostly touch base on the, what's in the red box for investigational agents, focusing on more inclusive trials, better trials, and learning from the past. <clears throat> so more, more inclusive trials. One of the hot topics I'll highlight moving forward is that we need to think carefully about who we enroll in trials and where appropriate increase enrollment in the clinical trials to more closely mimic the patients will receive the drug post-marketing. So these are some of the areas we focused on as an agency to improve eligibility, CNS, performance status, comorbidities, HIV, autoimmune diseases. Um, the example on the right is, is an application for lectinib where the, these patients without positive lung cancer frequently have brain mets, um, and have the company enrolling these patients greatly sped up development of the, of the drug because they did enroll these patients, as well as it showed that the drug worked in, in brain mets, um, allowing for labeling claims in this population. So <clears throat> here's an a, a FDA analysis of colorectal, colorectal cancer that focused on you know, the comparison of age of patients enrolled in colorectal cancer trials in applications submitted to FDA compared to um, the, the, the expected population of U.S. incidents of colorectal cancer. And, you know, clearly patients enrolled in clinical trials are younger than, and I think we all know this. And this, this is an older slide, but it's probably still close to true. I don't know if the data will completely hold up, but this basically shows that if the, predi the prediction is if eligibility criteria are, are relaxed due to comorbidities, that, you know, we'll probably be able to enroll in a more representative patient population, at least based on age. So now I'll shift to, to trial designs. And um, I think it's important to design a trial thoughtfully to ensure we enroll the appropriate number of patients in each trial. So clearly novel designs are facilitated by biomarkers. So there are, you know, of course, there are trials that will test multiple drugs at the same time. In one cancer, we have, you know, the MRC Focus 4 trial um, in colon cancer. There's a planned pre precision promise trial to be um, intended to be run by PanCan that they publicly announced. Um, there's also trials that can test multiple cancers in the same trial, like NCI Match or expansion cohort trials. Um, there, are real, there are registries of real-world data, as well as there are seamless designs, which I'll show you in a second, which are, in essence, a drug development uh, in a single trial. So here is um, what we call a seamless design. So this, you can see it's a very complex study. This was uh, pembrolizumab for the initial approvals for, uh, for melanoma and lung cancer. It was a study that enrolled over 1,000 patients you can see there are multiple cohorts in this trial, both with single-arm single arm cohorts as well as randomized cohorts. Um, very complex. Uh, although these might be appropriate in a limited number of circumstances, there are also real concerns regarding oversight of such trials. How is safety being followed throughout the trial? Um, you know, if, if not done thoughtfully, it really has the, the potential to, to um, delay development and increase cost if you're just enrolling patients without a, a lot of thought. So although Keynote 1 was a complex trial, it didn't start out that way. So the, I think the IND was submitted in 2011. And as you can see, at the, at the beginning, there were, there were relatively few, num few patients that were enrolled. 
Um, started getting an amendment uh, right before 2012. I think at this time, we're starting to see that there's real activity of this drug. And then as you can see, it got really complex with multiple different um, amendments, different arms, and a, a rapid expansion of enrollment. I think what's important here is that we did have lots of interactions with the company in, in this case um, to f facilitate the development of the drug. It was a breakthrough therapy. It was an important drug for, with an unmet need for different patients. Um, so this was appropriate in this case, but it's not necessarily the, should be the, the de facto start for, mo for most drugs. So here's our perspective on seamless designs. So these are implications of a full drug development program within a single protocol. You know, the, the, we, there needs to be the appropriate level of IRB scrutiny of these trials. Um, where appropriate, there, we need to have meetings between FDA and, and EMA and these companies. And, you know, it may be more difficult in these trials because, again, you don't have the, the clear demarcation of end of phase one meeting, end of phase two, it's just a single trial. Um, you know, you want to make sure the size and quality of the safety database is adequate and that the study could be adequate to support global regulatory approvals, not just in one jurisdiction. And, you know, with informed consent, the consent probably will need to change from when you start the trial uh, compared to when 600 patients are enrolled. Oh, I'll go back. Um, I think what's important is that the, the, there needs to be real justification for the sample size in these trials. So I think all too often now we're seeing three to 600 patient trials submitted first in human trial, multiple different cohorts and combinations, and there's not really a lot of thought in, into the design and what questions are actually going to be asked to obtain relevant data. And if that's not the case, you're, you're really just, we're not doing the right thing, um, both from drug development perspective and for the patients. Um, finally, I'm going to transition to uh, learning from prior experience. So this is my tree of, of publicly reported um, trials in pancreatic cancer. Um, most of these were described in a paper by Jordan Berlin in the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. Um, so I'm going to click on. So all the drugs in the green boxes are, are drugs that, from, the best, from what I can best tell, had uh, single-arm data that, and they moved into phase three. Uh, most of these had l very limited response rates or uh, a limited response rate in combination with gemcitabine, and you couldn't isolate the effect of the drug in combination with gemcitabine. Um, so it was minimal data that moved into phase three. So regoceratinib was the same. However, it was stopped in a, a few early futility analysis, which was probably appropriate. There were three drugs that, that did have randomized phase two trials. The, the top one, CRS-207, GVAX, actually... There's a breakthrough designation granted for that, and, and unfortunately for that one, it didn't uh, pan out in the, in the subsequent trial. Another one of these two drugs was moved into phase three based on uh, a positive p-value in a subgroup analysis. Um, so some of the lessons to learn here are <clears throat> um, don't overinterpret trial results when, when planning to go into phase three. Um, this especially holds true for single-arm combination studies, and I've seen that over and over again. You know, we have a response rate, but it's hard to interpret the effect in a, you know, compared to a single-center study where you know, seeing a patient at some Kettering is different from you know, the patients that will be enrolled in, in a phase three trial. Um, so same thing goes for, for single-arm PFS and survival. It's hard to interpret the data in these trials. Um, and thinking about p-values. So again, a, a p-value of less than 0.05 is not statistically significant necessarily unless it's in the right context. <clears throat> so the picture, just to give a, a very loose example of this, the picture on the right is Hugo Lloris, the, the goalkeeper of France. Um, more importantly for my son, he's a big Tottenham Hotspur fan. He's the, goalie of that, uh, the goalkeeper of that team. Um, 
If I were to shoot a penalty kick on him, I'd have less than a 5% chance of scoring that goal. However, if most of my friends that I pre-specified try to take a shot at the same time, probably one of those balls would get in. Um, it's not the perfect analogy, but it, it, does, it does apply mathematically that the more times you test, um, and we see this over and over presented in academic meetings, you'll see a p-value that's, that's less than 0.05. Well, that just by chance, it's, it's likely to occur if, if you test enough. Um, so I think it's important lessons to learn is move on to the next drug earlier if, if a drug is not effective. Um, you can expand if there's unprecedented drug effects. Um, and, and really about en enrollment, you know, you have the power regarding enrollment. It's hard for us to stop a trial um, just for an efficacy reason, it's for regulators. It's really up to, up to the academic community to say, you know, to really think hard about whether you should participate in this trial um, if it doesn't appear that promising. So finally, I think this was a little bit what I was asked to talk about, the explosion of new cancer treatments, uh, this being the future. At, at one point, there was one PD-1. Um, I called it Sponsor A. Then they developed their CTLA-4. Actually, the CTLA-4s actually came first, but uh, IDO inhibitor CD-40s. Then you have Sponsor B with their PD-L1 or PD-1. Um, different companies, CTLA-4. Third companies, Chemo. Fourth company, Cytokine. In, in, and obviously the combinations are endless. You know, we have probably over 20 PD-1, PD-L1s, uh, multiple different um, other uh, immunotherapies that, that each company is developing in combination. And so we have, a, you know, a lot of drugs out there. Um, it, it's hard for regulators to really have power to do anything about this. We, you know, Dr. Pazder has suggested to companies maybe they can, you know, combine their PD-1s in a single trial, for example, like gastric cancer, but so far industry hasn't been receptive to that, to that idea. Um, but it's, it, again, it's, with so many drugs, it's even more important to really think carefully about what, what drugs are actually being developed. Um, I, you know, I, and I think as a society, um, I mean, some of these issues that we talk about with endpoints, all these drugs, um, really what's, what's underneath it is the, is the cost of these drugs. Um, and, and I think with a number of drugs, I, I think it'd be, people would consider it less of a trial, less of a, sorry, a problem if, if this competition actually, Competition actually reduced prices, but we haven't seen that yet, for example, the VEGF inhibitors and the PD-1 inhibitors. So in summary, in an era of unprecedented, unprecedented drug effect in targeted populations, we need to use the appropriate context-specific regulatory approaches, um, encourage inclusive enrollment, consider new trial designs, but thoughtfully so. Um, use a thought, have a thoughtful use of biomarkers. We need to learn from prior negative trials, and you as the investigators really can control what drugs are studied. Thank you.